Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-439 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today we chat with our friends Dwayne and David about their adventure on the Wapak Trail. After I had to bail out, they decided to go and run it anyhow. So they had an adventure and they learned some lessons. So we decided to do a lessons learned conversation. I ended up ignoring doctor's orders and running the 124th virtual 2020 Boston Marathon. And you lucky folks will get one of my wonderfully thoughtful and entertaining race reports. Virtually. I know you've missed it. Right? You've missed them. So, you know, with the apocalypse and all, we haven't been able to do race reports. Now we got one. But it came out quite long, as race reports do, so that's all you'll get in this episode. I know. I deviously left you with a cliffhanger in the Apocalypse Story narrative, and now, in my own devious way, this allows me some more time to think, some time to work on u- untying that knot for the next show, right? So that means, just to summarize here, sometimes I don't speak plainly enough, I'll start with the interview and close with the race report, and that will fill out our agenda. So I'm running out of daylight, and I don't want to delay the episode, so without further ado, on with the show. And now for today's featured interview. Dave and Dwayne, good to see you. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a question because you guys were going to run this ultra up in Wapak with me on Labor Day and I got injured. So you guys went out and did some of it yourselves. And I thought it would be a good learning experience because Wapak's a unique course in that it's very technical in space, in places, you know, and it has a unique terrain to it. Mm-hmm. And Dwayne, you hadn't attempted any kind of distance like that before. And right. so there's a lot of learning there for people who say, you know, let's go out and run 40 something miles in the woods. There's a lot of learning there. What do you have to do to make that successful? What do you have to look out for? Because we do the bottom half of that, the bottom 18 miles of that as a race every year. And we do, we get people showing up, even though we tell them this is really hard. Don't come. They show up like the CrossFitters and well, they learn something. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's a learning experience. So I thought we could help our users, our friends out with that. So I'm going to toss points out and we'll talk through them. All right. So we're going to do the top three from each of us. Ready? So Dwayne, the first one you had was uh, what? What's your first point? Well, I had um, to um, break my run into manageable segments. I've done that on my pavement running and my road races for years, and I always find that to be helpful. So I, I think I naturally researched this trail that you had set up for us on my own and, uh, and started to look at the peaks when they came, what the climbs looked like, and I sort of tried to think how we were going to attack that. Things changed after you dropped out, though, Chris. I think they've thought it through, and you can talk more about this, Dave, but they've thought of ways that we could place our cars on the south to north route strategically so that we would come across them a little more on even intervals, I guess you could say. And so I was able to rethink how this race was going to unfold. And uh, I think it's important to think about each segment as just that alone I need to accomplish first. And just let that be my first goal is to get through that first part. And then uh, and then you can analyze what's coming next. So it's a, it's a simple thing. I think a lot of people do that. But um, I found it to be extra important for my mental health <laughs> the other day when we tried to tried the run. What do you think, David? That's great advice. This course is 21 miles end to end. It's got five substantial summits and each one of those has a, a strong shoulder on each side where you're climbing and falling. So it rates itself up if you want to think of each climb or to the next car, to the next parking area. But yeah, taking these kind of events and anytime you're doing a marathon and ultra, taking it in bite-sized chunks and saying, okay, I'm going to achieve this next mile. That's how you get to the end. Like you can't worry about mile 20 if you're only at mile three. So no, I think bite-sized chunks is really important. So you guys hadn't run all this course before. Do you think it is a benefit or not to know the course ahead of time when you're chunking it up like that? It would have been a benefit. So I'm familiar with the bottom six or eight miles of the course. The, sorry, the bottom, the southern six or eight miles. And the key thing here is this such an up and down route. There's very little that's straight and runnable, like kind of gravel road runnable or smooth single track. There's an area near the windblown cross-country ski resort or ski area that's nice pine needle trails, but there's only a, probably three or four miles of that out of 21. So you got to know when you can run and you got to be moving on those stretches because there's so much hiking in there. Yeah. You got to uh, got to take advantage. So it would have been helpful to, to have seen some of those other more technical parts before. In most cases, I like to just go into races fresh and <laughs> not know the course because uh, it's you always have a much better adventure. But I think with this course and with ultras in general, especially if it's one of your first couple of ultras, you want to know the course because that's one less thing to worry about to talk yourself out of on the course. You know, you hit a particularly hard session and you think, oh my God, is it all like this, right? Yeah. Um, and then you lose faith. But uh, so David, what's your first point? So you, you just gave me a great segue. So my, my first point was pre-mission planning and logistics. So control the things that you can control, do the things that you can do to control those things. So Chris was injured. He's already let folks know and he bailed out less than a week before the run. And so all of a sudden, I went from being the third most experienced ultra runner on this event to being the, the leader for me and Dwayne. And so I jumped in, tore apart the map, looked at the different sections, decided that it, the most important thing we could do was give ourselves flexibility on race day. And so instead of parking a car at either end, 21 miles apart, we found a couple middle spots. And that gave us multiple choices when we were kind of hitting our vehicles and treating each one of those as an aid station. And we planned ahead and hit ourselves a gallon of water at a nine mile mark. So we had an 18 mile out and back to start our day. Yeah. So we gave ourselves a little bit of cushion by giving ourselves water nine miles out. And by doing that and doing this planning, 
we had flexibility on race day. We knew we had places to get food in a couple different spots. We knew where our water was. Now, flexibility is great, especially if someone gets hurt. And that was our thought is we're a small group. If someone gets hurt, we need to be able to kind of have a safe exit. But that also meant we had a safe exit in the middle of the course. And yeah, so, that, that so mentally, I think, okay, I have, I have a bailout point. But I think taking your time, doing a little bit of research, looking at the map, like I'm saying, I hadn't seen two thirds of the course ahead of time, but I knew where I would have access to roads or transition areas. And this is a pretty remote area in Southern New Hampshire. So there's no convenience stores. There's no place to get water along this route. There's no. one place that has a porta potty, like one state park. So if you're out there, you got to be really self-sufficient on uh, providing your own gear and water and fuel. So anyway, planning logistics gives you flexibility on race day. And your thoughts, Dwayne? Yeah, that certainly came into play for us too, didn't it, Dave? As we were between each of our cars, and uh, I knew it, at some point, I think around mile 19, uh, my body was telling me what, what you hear, I guess I've heard you hear a lot on ultra runners is that uh, your day is pretty done, Dwayne. You better find a way out of here. I knew I had a few more miles to get to my car, which I guess my car would have been mile 19 there. That's what it would have been. And um, I knew I could get to that. So I sent Dave ahead. I said, Dave, go ahead to the car, get your brake started. And then when I get there, and I'll meet you there and we'll reevaluate. Like Dave said, it also gave me a, a chance to think about, do I, am I going to be able to stay in this any longer? Or is this my day right here? Am I going to quit at 19 miles at, at the car there and and call it a day. But I didn't. Well, we, it, was, it was good. I got there and it, it actually brings me to my, to my second point. Wait, wait, don't I get a point? <laughs> you get to put in here too. Aren't I the moderator here? Yeah. You put some time on the trail. Yeah. So my thing with ultras is you want to be really careful giving yourself outs, right? Because it's going to suck at some point. That's what an ultra is all about. It doesn't matter how well you've trained. You're going to get those low lows and your brain's really good at talking you out of stuff. So you have to go in like laser focused on unless there's a bone sticking out of the skin, I'm going to finish. And that starting with that set point, then you can sort of ratchet down from there and make sure everybody who's supporting you also has the same attitude. So they're going to hustle you out of the chair and kick you in the butt and keep you going. So you yeah. know, if you have people around you who are going, oh, it's a hard day. Maybe you should stop. You're going to stop. Right. Yeah. So you, you got to set the bar. Yeah, I'm hungry. Yeah. So you got to set that bar high going in because it's going to suck. And that's yeah. part of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I only have my own voice to listen to when I was t telling myself that it's getting pretty dark out there. And, um, and I got to that car and David had a chair out for me. He said, Dwayne, take a seat. So I sat down, he gave me some of the sweet potato mix that he, that he created. And after eating a little bit, he and I talked about it and I decided I've got more in me. I'm just going to get out there and keep it going. I was able to push through seven more miles to the second vehicle and um, at least get, keep it going that way. So that was, uh, David? It was helpful. Sure. Is, this, is this, this my point number two? No, no. Do you have thoughts on what I said? I'm with you. You have to want that end goal and you have to believe that you can do it. I think it's Henry Ford who said something like, those who say they can do something can, those who say they can't, cannot. Like if you put the no word in your strategy, you've already given yourself the way out and you're going to take the exit. So I was happy that after 19 miles, I kind of could convince Dwayne that a trail marathon on a really hard course would be a nice goal for the day. At that point, also, we're looking at the clock and worrying about daylight. And that's where instead of 43 miles, Dwayne said, I'm going to target a marathon. And I said, I'm going to target 50K and do the, do the full north to south route. So 
that was, uh, but yeah, you're right. If you give yourself the way out, that's very hard. And I had that when I did my hundred miler last year, which was 41 loops. You got to believe that you don't get to stop until you hit your goal because you're going to go by that share 40 times. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your second point, Dave? So my second point, I think this is a key thing for folks who are out on the trail is that speed counts, but it's not your top end speed. This is not your 5k road race speed. It's your hiking speed, your power hiking speed. So if you can improve your slow power hike. So if I'm out on the road and I'll just use really round numbers and say, I am trying to improve my road mile pace from like nine minutes per mile to eight minutes per mile. Great. That sounds lovely, right? But on a course like this, there's only four miles where I can run at a good clip. So I've just saved myself four minutes. I've worked really hard to save myself four minutes. So that means there's 17 miles I'm going slow. So I want to focus getting my power hike. And if I can power hike at 15 or 16 minutes per mile instead of 20 or 22 minutes per mile, now I'm going to save a ton of time. And I'm going to, you have a shot at finishing your target time for like, we were thinking this would be a 10 or 11 hour challenge. You're going to spend a lot of time power hiking. So being super efficient at the power hike is really important. And this is where I was kicking Dwayne's butt. <laughs> we're going up this yeah. hill and I'm just like in my energizer buddy mode, short strides, nice and compact, using my arms nice and tight. And I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, I lost Dwayne again. And so <laughs> I would get to stop and rest at the top of each climb because I've focused on that and really worked hard on this like 16 minute per mile power hike. Now yeah. that sounds slow, but when you're on rocky technical terrain with super steep ups, that's a great clip to be moving. And I would have had a great day if I could just maintain that. I mean, I got tired and sore as well. But I think focusing on your low end speed, that low gear, but getting it just a few minutes per mile faster than your easy walk, that's a key lesson for trail races. Yep, I agree. Do I need anything to add on that? No, I just, I noticed it early on that that was going to be an issue in terms of keeping up with the pace that we needed to, to get this done in the goal. But I only could do what I could do. I mean, I trained the best I could. I think I'm learning that I really need to work on that. Uh, yeah, so you train the hiking, right? And you do it in little bursts. So what I typically will do is do a 12-12 um, a cadence. So I'll count off 12 steps at a pipe power hike, 12 steps at a walk, 12 steps at a power hike. And that way you're switching muscle groups back and forth and you're not mm -hmm. overtaxing any, right? And it's a good way, especially when you're exhausted, to still, because you can do 12 steps, right? Or call it a minute or call it 30 seconds, whatever your particular cadence is. You can do that, right? And it gives you something to focus on as well, right? Wrap your brain around. And you sure. pick up a lot of time. If I can key in on one word you just said there, Chris, it was about muscle groups. And that's a huge energy saver when you're using your running muscles some of the time and your walking slash hiking muscles some of the time. They're very different muscle sets. And so you're actually not wearing out the same muscle the whole way. So yep. I think that's one of the reasons why you can really stretch out an ultra and have less overall muscular pain because you're using different muscle groups. It's, it's really, really cool. Yeah, and if you can get good at that, I don't care how technical the course is, you can finish, all 100 milers have a 30-hour cutoff. That's a little bit faster than three and a half miles an hour, right? That yep. means you have to run very little of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All right, so Dwayne, you had a point for us. Yeah, I got a few more. One, I'll throw this in, uh, learn how to fall gracefully. Can I just throw that <laughs> out quickly? <laughs> I, and that's not because I fell awkwardly. It is because I, I, I think I've, this is the one thing that I've mastered is um, how to fall. So I did fall one time. I don't think Dave fell at all. No. Yep. Yeah. But, but I'll say Dwayne did a great job falling. Like he literally, he said the word falling before he hit the ground so I could turn and watch. Yep. He did a lovely shoulder roll, tucked and rolled, protected his head, 
he was in a really rocky, knobby place to hit the ground. And yeah. he had no serious scrapes, no blood, no bruises. So he threw his 170 pound body at the ground. So you get that jarring feeling, but he did a great job of not getting injured and ending our day quickly. So yeah. falling gracefully is very key if you can do it. Yep. Can that be a throwaway point though, Chris? Can I add a serious one now? No, but I'll tell you on WAPAC, you yeah. gotta know how to fall. I can't be afraid to be bleeding a little bit. Yep. Yeah, you gotta be okay. It, that was uh, definitely rock. I realized, and again, watching Dave and then um, analyzing myself that um, to maintain a strict schedule for food and hydration, and you hear that all the time in endurance sports, I, I know, but uh, man, it's hard for me to make a conscious effort to just get that done on race day and to uh, stick with it. But I would just notice all of a sudden Dave would stop sometimes mid-trail instead of waiting to get to a summit or something, he would just kind of stop and turn around and to start taking something out of his pack and here it's eating time for Dave. He knew when he should be doing that. I could just feel myself like putting things off a, a bit more than I should. I will say the hydration pack that I got really made a difference in my running these longer events because the water is so convenient that I was keeping the, the water going through. But in terms of eating food, Dave had to keep reminding me and I'm, I tried to keep up best I could. So but, uh, yeah. some, some wise ultra runner, and I don't know who it was, said that basically a hundred miler is an eating contest with some running thrown in. Like as long as you can maintain your fueling, you can keep going. And so uh, we, between the two of us, had a great mix of real food. Like Dwayne brought a whole bunch of these little, uh, he cut up a bunch of fruit, like watermelon, mango, blah, 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 melon stuff, froze it all up. So it's in our cooler and we can just kind of eat these frozen melon things. I made this sweet potato mix with bacon, had some bananas, kind of just real food, stuff that takes your body a little time to digest. But yeah, you got to eat all the time and you got to eat before you think you're hungry and you got to drink before you think you're thirsty. We went nine miles to the first water stop and I kept thinking to myself, I have to finish the two liters in my pack before we get there. Like if I don't drink two liters in nine miles, I'm not keeping up. That was part of my thought is just always kind of staying ahead of it. Yeah. I mean, as you get more experience, you can slack off in that a little bit. But the first couple that you run, you want to actually have like a timer, like a 20 minute or a 30 minute timer where I'm eating something. Right. And the other thing is the stuff you guys are eating, the natural food is going to be way better in the long run than uh, gels or Gatorade or that kind of stuff. Because you get sick of that stuff in about two hours and it starts making you sick. Yep. No, I hear it. Dwayne actually had a timer going for eating and it wasn't until like mile four that I realized that that's what it was. I just kept every 30 or 40 minutes, I'd hear this chirping. I'm like, what is that sound out there? And yeah, it was the timer. <laughs> how rookie is it of me though, Dave? I told you that timer was going off, but it wasn't at the interval that I'd wanted it. I couldn't figure out how to change it from the previous race that I was in. So <laughs> just, so here, what did it do? It did, did me nothing. So Yeah. And plus there's not a lot of people on the course to, to like hand you stuff. So Nope, we were completely self-supported out there. Yeah. It was good. So I've run that race a couple of times where we all we did was drop some gallons of water on the trail, and that was the water stop, right? Yep. If you got there, the water was good, tough. Yep. Right? Wow. So I don't know where we are points-wise. Why don't you share one, Chris? I'll share one. I'll share one. And we talked about this earlier. If you're going to schedule one of these and it's your first one, take a day or two off afterwards because you're going to be not just physically in this race. If you ran this race without any real training, your quads would be destroyed from all the elevation here, right? And the technical stuff, not only physically, but mentally, if you're out for a 10, 12 hour run, you're going to chew up all the carbohydrates in your system and you're not going to be thinking well. 
for yep. 24 hours. So take a day off afterwards. And I am so bad at this. I used to always be on an airplane 20 minutes after a race just because I could, right? And that would be some advice I'd have. I agree with you. That is a great call. I took the day off the day after as a vacation day, and it was the most relaxing drive home ever. And I will also say, so post-run, we were going back to the house we were staying, and Dwayne was like, oh, why don't you take a shower? And I said, I have to eat. Like right now, I need to be eating. And so I spent the next 20 minutes cooking dinner, getting everything all set, eating a huge meal. I'm like, okay, now I can take a shower. But just kind of knowing that when you're done, you need to rest, recover, and refuel. Then you can start fresh and maybe have a cold beverage. For the record, I, I did tell Dave, hey, take your shower. I'll start cooking the dinner. But I think he saw, saw my face as I was saying that. And he, he didn't see a lot of confidence in putting that dinner together as well as he was going to be able to. I'm pretty happy with how it came out. So I won't complain that I cooked. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I do. All right. So what else? Who's next? I got one. So this is a lifelong mantra of mine, but be your own friend. Like this is true in real life. This is true in races. This is true in in ultra marathons and trail running. So be your own friend with mental self-talk, positive self-talk. So Dwayne got to a point where he was like, oh, I'm in pain. Oh, I'm miserable. Oh, I'm kind of suffering. And then he was doubting himself and saying, oh, I'm not sure I can go 19 miles. I'm not sure I can go 26 miles. And here I am, supportive friend saying, no, you can do it. You're doing great. You're strong. You're like powering up this mountain, right? But shouldn't I be giving myself that same positive encouragement? Um, There's an ultra coach out there named David Roach, who's like all about the power of positive communication. And he has said something like this, but we should be our own best friends. Like we shouldn't be doubting ourselves and always questioning ourselves. Like, gosh, mentally we gotta say, yeah, you know what? I'm in a tough point, but I can do this. Like, I believe in me. I've put in the training. I've got the food and water. I've got someone I can rely on who's right there next to me on the trail. And so we got to be really think about that positive spirit and really try not to say the negative words out loud. You may have a negative thought and say, yeah, my feet hurt. Ooh, I've got chafing, which by the way, no chafing this time. Good news. But if there's negative thoughts, hear the negative thought. This is kind of a Zen thing, but hear the negative thought, absorb it, set it aside. You may feel some misery. Go ahead. Sit down on the side of the trail have a little pity party for 30 seconds and say, okay, I got that behind me. Now my next job is to get to the next place where I can stop and eat and drink. So being positive and being your own friend, treat yourself like you would treat a friend who needed help because at that time, that's what you are. So anyway, that's something I think we all need to try to work on trail and in real life. Yeah, I lived through that, David, when you had that chair out for me and I sat down. I wasn't going to give up for sure. I wanted to evaluate and uh, I went through that and I knew that that pain, I was getting some pain in my knee and it was a radiation pain that I couldn't place what was going on. I thought, maybe this is just hard use pain and maybe I can run through this, but I wasn't sure. So after sitting there a while and talking with you and, and getting something to eat, I definitely said, okay, let's try to run through this. I felt it was important to learn how to categorize the pain like that. And to make sure you evaluate, is this something that I should be careful with and stop to you know, make sure I preserve myself for, for future running? Or is this something I can push through? Yeah. And I saw that was one of your points there, which is being able to tell what pain is what. And that's something I found is unique with ultras is they will throw up these phantom pains. It's almost like somehow your subconscious is testing you. Oh, yeah. It'll go, okay, your knee hurts. And then like you go ignore that. And 10 miles later, you, well, it's gone, right? Yeah, because it's not this. And then it'll be something else. And you yeah, just this go, is okay, the, uh, ignore this that. Is the internal governor from uh, Tim Noakes, I think he's the uh, author from South Africa. I think he's a doctor too. But like your brain is telling you to stop. And so it gives you strange symptoms that then go away. 
Right, right. And you just, like you said, David, you recognize the symptom, you go, okay, that hurts. And you put it aside, right? And you keep going. <laughs> it all comes back to that continuous forward motion. And I think uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up because I think we're about maybe a half an hour in now. And the other thing is, you know, all this stuff sounds strange, but you can practice all of it. And so if you do a couple of good, anything over 20 miles is a good training run for an ultra. And you just mm-hmm. go out, do that, practice your reading, practice your suffering, practice your self-talk. It's all, all this stuff can be practiced, the hiking, all of it. Right? Oh, and in that note, practice with your gear. You're never going to go do a 10 hour training run, but wear your vest, wear your clothes, know your gear. Yep. Like you do not want to try something new that you've never tried before. Um, That's a key thing, but yep. Because you're right. A three or four hour training run is, it's as long as anyone needs for pretty much any race. And yeah, you're not going to do a hundred mile training run for a hundred miler or a 50 mile training run for a 50 miler, but uh, you may get a couple of fifties in for a hundred miler, which is going to give you the same sort of practice run as the hundred. Absolutely. So uh, with that, I guess I can sort of summarize here. You guys had a good outing. You got to see the beautiful trail. It was a lovely day, by the way, a little warm, but uh, good visibility. Oh, beautiful. Really nice trails up there, Chris. Yeah. One of my favorite, one of my happy places. I'm lucky I didn't go with you. I probably would have fell down more doing Uh, Maybe right now. Okay. Yeah. That's probably what I did to myself. So let's take it out here. Any final thoughts or summary from both of you guys? Would you do it again? So absolutely. I think these are great. I think it's a good fun. And I know that in our kind of modern world, you got to push your own envelope and push your limits to see kind of see what you're made of. And when you do things like this, you live in the moment and you kind of can be right there. If you're scrambling up a rock face, you can't be thinking about work. You can't be thinking about some phone call. You got to be just like in the moment, living with that and experiencing it and then sharing it with someone is even better. So Going out for a long run by yourself is great. Going out with someone else on a mission and an adventure is 10 times better. So if you can, pull together some friends and go do something fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was certainly an opportunity of discovery for me as I'm a a newbie and trying to figure out my place in the ultra world. What's it going to be on the trails? And this was a chance for me to discover a lot of the things that we talked about today. And I did that. And I, I sit here, honestly, looking forward to extending that challenge for myself again in the future and, and taking it the next step. And, and even with all the pain that I went through, let's see what I can take that, where I, where I can take that. Yeah. And I wish I could have gone with you guys. It's one of my favorite races. Um, and I was looking forward to doing the whole thing, the Wapak and back, especially that part, that last bit up Pacman Adnock, Dave, that's just a real scramble. Oh yeah. It was crazy. It was, yeah. it was, it was a great day. It was interesting to be doing that was the section I did by myself. So that was a, uh, yeah. so Chris, yeah, the, can I take, Eight seconds to do some shameless self-promotion. Sure. So I'm a newbie to the podcasting world. So Chris has only been doing this for like 13 years. I'm a little bit behind him, but I have a podcast called Running Virtually with Just Plain Dave. And if people want to kind of search out for that in all of your podcast apps, Running Virtually with Just Plain Dave, I'm doing a longer race recap there. And I've got more of the same. It's kind of like 20 or 30 minute summaries of kind of ultra endurance world inspired by you and some of the the longtime podcasters who've been sharing their thoughts and philosophy. Send me the links. I'll do it. All right. You got a quick couple of exit words, Dwayne? Yeah, Chris, you talk about the rock scramble on these trails. Uh, that's just as you're about to climb up Mount uh, the Pacman Adnock. Um, to get my 26.2 in, the last three-tenths of a mile, I had to scramble up that rock, those rocks, and back down again to get to, to hit my marathon distance. And so I just secretly was uh, enjoying the idea that I got to at least experience that in my run the other day. So. He, he did three tenths of a mile up instead of across, but yeah, it's still there. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
it's a good course. Yeah. So, all right, everybody now knows what to do when they want to get out in the woods and spend uh, 10, 12 hours having fun. Exactly. Happy trails, my friends. Nice talking to you, Chris. Thanks for joining right. my adventure, Dwayne. Thanks. See you guys. You. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The 2020 Boston Marathon. Midnight at the Oasis. Put your camel to bed. Tim. Tim stuck that earworm into my head about 20K into my 2020 Boston Marathon run. And none of us could remember who the artist was. I can remember a couple lines of the chorus. Midnight at the Oasis. Put your camel to bed. Let's slip off to a sand dune real soon. Kick up a little dust. And that's a heck of a one-hit wonder to get stuck in your head as you're running circles in the neighborhood. Captain and Tennille, I offered. No, that's muskrat love and tie yellow ribbon. No, 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 tie yellow ribbon is Tony Orlando and Dawn. That's the kind of thing that we talk about when we're running. We got down this rabbit hole because Tim heard a guy listening to the Pina Colada song on the beach at Cape Cod which he did recall was Rupert Holmes, who liked Pina Coladas. And I'm sure you remember the Pina Colada song. It was in Shrek, and it was part of the awesome mix in Guardians of the Galaxy. If you like Pina Coladas and getting lost in the rain. A bit of Wikipedia snooping reveals that the original lyrics, if you can believe it, were If you like Humphrey Bogart and getting lost in the rain. And it turns out that Midnight at the Oasis is a 1973 top 40 hit by Maria Muldar. Interesting, because besides this smarmy pop hit, she was a fairly accomplished folk and blues singer and did a stint as a backup singer for The Grateful Dead. Yep. And I was thankful to have the guys join me for a few K in the middle of my run. But... Could have done without the earworm. It is this mindless banter that made the middle 12K of my marathon fly by with astonishing rapidity and joy. The 2020 Boston Marathon has been a ticking time bomb of an unknown for six months now. I was registered to run as a charity runner for my club when the apocalypse started in March it became abundantly clear to us that the race wouldn't happen in April, as the state of Massachusetts shut down. We all kept training and waited for the BAA to come to some sort of decision, and eventually they took the hopeful step of postponing the race until the fall. Hopeful in the sense that the general consensus was that the pandemic would have passed or cleared up by then. My schedule going into the year was to run Boston in April, but have my A race be on a fast course in June to requalify. As the bright, quiet days of spring morphed into a desultory summer, we were all still working from home, and all the races were canceled. Originally, I planned to run the Grand Canyon rim-to-rim in September in that weather window. But had to cancel that because it conflicted with the original rescheduled date of Boston. But they shut down the parks shortly after that as well, 
anyhow. As the summer crawled by, the BAA switched, and they gave up hope of a rescheduled race and switched to a virtual race for Boston 2020. And if you were one of the first 15,000 to sign up for the virtual, they pledged to send you some sort of promotional kit. And more importantly, it counted for those of us with streaks going. So, you know, tradition and all. And a box did show up the week before the race. It was fairly uninspiring. One might say lame. A sleeve of shot blocks. A Boston cream pie flavored cliff shot. And a unicorn sticker. I put the sticker on my truck. Also an actual small size bib number with the numbers... 2020 on it. Hmm. Now, virtually, you could also print out a bunch of stuff, but I don't have that kind of arts and crafts talent, nor the energy. I don't do well without a challenging goal on the horizon. So I went back to the basics and scheduled my own Trail Ultra for Labor Day. I took advantage of the great virtual race across Tennessee to get some good volume of trail miles in through the summer months. Once more, my plans were emerging from the chaos. I would run the Wapak and back, 42-mile ultra, mountain race, and capture my 2020 Boston in the process. It was all lining up. A challenging outing to train for, and a twofer. Something to train for, a worthy goal. I had beaten back the blinding gales of chaos, and carved out my own little oasis of normalcy again. But as it turns out, so many times in life, chaos doesn't care about your well-laid plans, chaos doesn't sleep, chaos gnaws at the edges looking for an opportunity to F with you. And so, after a pretty good four-ish hour outing, training on the WAPAC, there was a twinge, a twinge on the inside of my quadriceps while I was walking the dog in the morning. I made a note to watch my nutrition and forgot about it. A twinge. Chaos had a toehold, a beachhead. Chaos had stuck its gnarled and odious nose under the tent flap of my plans. I worked through a few more heavy mileage weeks as I peaked for the event. I had a one-week taper built into the schedule. Now, Wapak is a hard course. I got a handful of three-hour-plus runs in the heat and the trails and was confident I could lean on my experience to go the distance, but was still a little nervous. Alters are the stalking ground of chaos. There are a lot of ways they can go sideways, from weather to nutrition to logistics. I was stressing a little but it was the right mix of confidence and performance anxiety. And that twinge turned into a general swelling that started spreading down my leg. After my last long run, I decided, yeah, I need to see the doctor because this was something I have not seen before. I've had the personal bite of chaos in the form of injuries many times in the last 20 years. This was something new. There was no pain when running. There was no angle where I could feel the sharp, biting pain of weight bearing on a tear or a pull. There was a localized lump of soreness, 
and then an itchy swelling that radiated down towards the knee. And the lymph node in the groin was swollen. Strange. As we all do in these situations, I started trying to figure out what it could be. And the symptoms pointed to some sort of infection. But what kind of infection would be so localized? My daughter helpfully suggested a sarcoma. So I went to see the man. I really like my doctor. He's a thoughtful Hasidic about my age who seems to enjoy our visits, like I'm some sort of strange animal from the zoo who swings by every once in a while with something interesting. I like to think I'm an amusing break in the monotonous parade of old sick people. I talked him through it. He did some groping around, drew some blood. He looked a bit extra thoughtful. Doctors in general don't like localized masses. He said it could be some sort of hematoma. He also answered the question he knew I would ask and told me to stay off it until we could get an MRI. And that produced a mad scramble in my life to cancel all my ultra plans. But what about the Boston Marathon? It was still out there, ticking like a virtual time bomb. Do I care? I guess I care. As near as I could figure this would be my 21st Boston Marathon and probably a streak of 16 or 17 in a row. The distance certainly didn't scare me. I've been training for an ultra. If the injuries stayed out of the way, I could run a marathon. That made me nervous as well. I hadn't trained for a marathon. Heck, I hadn't run on the road for two months. What if that thing in my leg popped and gave me a stroke? I had to limp my way through it. Sheesh. I spent the following week wandering the labyrinth of American healthcare systems, searching for the minotaur of an MRI, and I finally got it done. But as the window of availability to post a Boston time closed, it became clear I would not have an answer in time. Let's face it. I was confident I already knew the answer. There was an 80% sure chance that the answer was going to be, we really don't know what this is. You did something. Stay off it for three or four weeks and call us if it doesn't go away. Editor's note, this is almost exactly paraphrases the call I eventually got from the doctor. But now I was up against a decision. Going into the final weekend of time window, do I ignore the undiagnosed injury and knock out a marathon? Anyone who knows me, would have observed my ruminations with a shake of the head and a knowing chuckle, because everyone on the planet would know what my decision would be, besides me, of course. And once I came to that same obvious conclusion, the next question was where? Where should I run this marathon? I could go out into the woods and do another long trail run. I could string together a route, maybe over to see my mom. Or, with chaos chewing at my ankle, I could keep it simple and run in my neighborhood. My neighborhood is a quiet, flat loop of almost exactly one kilometer. A marathon is 42 kilometers. That would make it boring, simple, and easy. If something went wrong, the injury, if the injury spoke loudly, I could bail out. In my mind, there was a very good chance that chaos could still be reaching out. What to do? Should I walk? Should I walk run? What's the plan? I could do some sort of walk or walk-run to stay off the injury, but that would take so long. Again, 
it came back to keeping it simple. Do what you always do. Do what you've done for 25 years. Run. If I hit a point where I can't run, I walk. Besides the other big advantage of 1K loops is the fact that I could set up an aid station. Anything I needed. Fluid, nutrition, clothes, right there, every 1K. Plus a nice opportunity to take a quick rest and evaluate things every five minutes or so. I liked the idea of 1K loops. I could get my head around counting those loops. Maybe I'd find some chalk and mark a tick mark on the road after each lap. Maybe I'd draw that unicorn finish line on the road. Plan set. So I shot a text to my buddies. I'll be running my Boston Marathon starting around 6 a.m. Sunday. Come over and join me for a couple loops. These are the types of things they're used to getting from me. Now to prepare. Saturday, I laid out my clothes and gathered up my nutrition in my ultra bag, mixed up a big bottle of half-strength Gatorade, found my Enduralites, filled another big bottle with water, rummaged around for any old leftover gels I could find, and a couple expired cliff bars, switched those orthotics over into my road shoes. Good enough. Good to go. I decided I'd wear the 2019 race shirt and pin on that 2020 bib number. You know, the spirit of things and such. I was painting Saturday, so I took my Garmin watch off and put it on the charge early to have it ready for Sunday morning. It's one of those classic Garmin clampy things with the prongs that USB into the computer. So the rules for this virtual were that you had to report your time. There was some sort of BAA app that I had downloaded to my phone for reporting, but that looked pretty dodgy, and I prefer not to carry my phone. I just use my freshly charged Garmin to track the miles, submit that time, plan set, once more, I had herded chaos back into its dark shoebox and had a plan. Hope springs eternal. Every day the weeds of chaos grow, and every day we beat them back. That's what humans do. Finished up painting, made sure my phones were all charged, and went to bed early. At 5 a.m., I bounced out of bed and into my running stuff. It was dark and a bit cold. My plan was to be on the road by 6 a.m., and even if everything went totally sideways, I could still be back to watch the Patriots game at noon. I made my hot oatmeal with berries and almonds and my morning pot of coffee, and this got the necessaries in motion, and I was right on track. I popped into my home office to grab my Garmin watch, and wouldn't you know it, it was dead as the proverbial doornail. Apparently... The little prongy things hadn't aligned quite right. Chaos had come barking back into the room. Okay, no problem. I'm not going to stand around waiting for this watch to charge. I'll just use the BAA app on the phone. But if I'm going to do that, dang, that means I have to carry the phone. So I'll have to wear my pack. Where did I leave that pack? Searching the house in the pre-dawn. Screw it, I'll just wear my backpack. I grabbed all my aid station kit, jumped into my truck, and drove the 200 feet down the road where the loop started. I put the tailgate down and set up my stuff. I started the BAA app, threw it in the backpack, and started running loops as the sun came up. <laughs> 
The first hour went by peacefully in the quiet dawn. I had a podcast on my headphones, and time passed. The injury felt fine, my legs felt fine, I felt fine. Each lap I'd swing by my aid station and take a drink or a nibble on something. I had brought the old gels, but I also had some yummy dates. Dates are in season right now, so I had them handy. They were pitted dates, which means that the pits were removed, which never made sense to me. Pitted sounds like they have the pits put back in them for some reason. And I also had some nice dried apricots, or apricots, depending on where you're from. So you might say I had a cache of apricots, or a cache of apricots, or a cache of apricots. Well, anyway, the way you would calculate the number of combinations there is called a factorial. There are two choices, so two factorial is two times two times one combinations. But however you choose to mispronounce that phrase... I had a cache of apricots and dates, which were quite nice to nibble on. And as the sun rose on a nice, cool, autumn Sunday morning, ten 1K loops passed under the cadence of my old legs, and I pulled into the 10K aid station, which was the same as every other aid station in this virtual race, but 10K seemed like a logical place to pull the phone out and check my progress. Pulling the phone out of its plastic shroud, I read the problematic notification, Location services not found. Apparently, it was tracking the time okay, but not the distance. Chaos had sucked my leg fully into its dripping and cancerous maw up to the hip joint, but I was already running, and I wasn't about to give up. When I was a boy, you know... All we had was rocks, and I knew the loop was 1K. All I really needed to do was run 43 loops, and that should be more than enough for a marathon. And I looked around for some way to count loops. I could collect stones and line them up. I could use sticks, but as I looked at the back of my truck, Coombe Aid Station, I realized that the bed liner has ridges and furrows in it, and these linear features would make a Great, an excellent abacus of sort. And I counted the ridges across the bed, and there were 38. Great. Run the length of the bed, plus another 5K, and I'd be all set. I had a couple of old target arrows, another long story. The neighbor kids had launched into my yard down the Cape. I used those to mark off the tens of Ks. I looked around for something that would fit in the furrows that I could move over one furrow each lap to count and found an abandoned orange drinking straw in the gutter. And that is probably the most arcane counting system ever devised to track a Boston Marathon. Just as I was polishing up these tracking machinations, Brian arrived and jumped in with me for the 11th K lap. And as we reached the end of that straightaway, Tim parked and jumped in too, and now I have my crew with me, and it was fun. And we circled the neighborhood, chatting to neighbors and dog walkers and having a grand old time. Every time we'd pass the truck, I'd move the straw a notch and grab a nibble. We'd maybe change directions. The sun pushed through the clouds, and it was perfect weather for a Boston Marathon. I joked that we'd kill for this weather on Patriot's Day. 
Brian ran with me through 22K and then bailed out to take some drone footage of Tim and I running. Tim jumped out at 25K. I wished them well and kept running laps up through 30K. It was really helpful to have those guys with me for those middle miles. I couldn't thank them enough. And I was starting to feel the infamous wall approaching. And I was waiting for the inevitable, that crash. I sucked down an old espresso love gel, which brightened me up a bit. With 10K to go, my energy flagging, I called my wife and told her to bring Ollie out in a dry shirt. I could use the company, Ollie that is. That Boston 2019 shirt was starting to chafe a bit. I don't think those shirts are actually meant to run in. I picked up Ollie, who was kind enough to pull me through a couple of loops. Plus, he allowed me to stop and pick up poop. The stopping was quite welcome. The having to bend over to pick up poop, not so much. I thought it might turn into a grind after that, but it did not. I kept running. I kept feeling fine. I felt tired, but I felt fine. I was surprised as I counted down that last 10K and how good I felt. I suppose all the stopping at each K and having trained for an ultra, there really wasn't any threat of a crash. And then I was moving the straw past the 38th furrow, in the truck bed, and back to the beginning as I counted down 5K to go, and I started talking to Ollie, describing the last Ks of that Boston course, the cemetery, the trolley tracks, Cleveland Circle. Two laps to go, and I told him about the crowds pushing in from the sides behind the snow fencing, the walking dead who had gone out too fast on the hills, the one-mile-to-go mark, the dip under, and the runners up ahead disappearing into that right-hand turn onto Hereford. That little hill up Hereford on the lumpy Boston roads. That last turn onto Boylston and the finish line so far away. And that final push through the mats. And Ollie didn't seem to care much. He was enjoying the trot around the neighborhood. 43K, 43 laps, I was done. I had finished the 124th Boston Marathon in my own weird way. In this 2020 year of weirdness, I had shaken off the snapping jaws of chaos and imposed my will on the universe, gathering for a short time the normalcy of the run into myself. I checked my phone and was surprised to see that it was 11 a.m. Wow, that didn't feel like a five-hour effort. Felt more like a four-hour and change effort, but five hours is what I manually entered into the results. Thinking about it later, I realized that when you take 42 breaks at a marathon, that adds up to a pretty big chunk of time. And with the 124th Boston Marathon in the rearview mirror, and no worse for wear, I went home to take a shower, have a coffee, maybe a little brunch, and watch the game. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have run 1K loops through the end of episode 439, 4-439 of the Run Run Live podcast. And although I did not get any call from the doctor about the swelling in my leg in time for my marathon run, he finally did give me a call back this week. And I nailed it. He said exactly what I said he was going to say. You can go back and listen to it. I told you he was going to say this. He said, 
Well, first he said, good news is there's no mass anywhere because doctors don't like masses. But there is some sort of swelling. We don't know what it is. Maybe it's an infection. Stay off it for a couple weeks. Give us a call back if it doesn't go away. To which I responded, yeah, it felt fine when I ran a marathon in my neighborhood on Sunday. Oh, how we enjoy our little tete-a-tete. Huh? He knows better than to give me the, you need 10 sessions of physical therapy line. Yeah, I don't fall for that one either. Fall is closing in. Daylight is fading. And I'm going to take it easy for a few weeks. I'm trying to transition to a weights routine because I feel a bit fragile and weak. And I'd really love to go to a gym and get it on with some real weights. But I think that ship is still out at sea. So I guess I'll have to figure out how to do it at home. Uh, My work has been super busy. (laughs) And I quite enjoyed the last couple of weeks not having to squeeze two hours of running into the day. Right? Uh, But this morning I couldn't take it any longer. And I went out and did an easy 10K with the boys over in Groton with Ollie on the leash. Right? Couldn't, Couldn't stay any longer. Needed to run. So I feel pretty good. And the swellings, well, there's one little knot in there and the uh, swelling in the lymph nodes down. So I hope you enjoyed the adventure here today, the, the adventures we talked about. I know I did. 2020 only has three more months in it. So forget about hunkering down. Forget about that. Spread your wings. Fly. Push away the sticky carapace of chaos and impose your will and your love on the world. There are mountains to be climbed. There are dragons to be slain. So grab your Vorpal sword, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Which resonates